0: Good morning, holy ones of God. You know, it feels a little strange saying that. You know, we recognize our sin. We see all the ways that we are unholy. And yet the Bible calls us God's holy ones, this word saints. And you know, the amazing thing about that is that that is a reality. Uh, it's, It's a an objective, definitive reality. We are God's holy ones. Every moment of every day, all the way up until we die, and then in His presence forever, we are God's set-apart people. And the call of the Bible is that we live in accordance with that identity, that we are by nature as born-again believers God's holy people. And so the call of the gospel is to live in that way, to reflect that holiness that the Lord has given us. So it's a, it's a privilege, it's a blessing to stand before God's holy ones, God's people, and to bring God's Word, to bring instruction from the Holy Scriptures. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 11, verses 1 to 10. Exodus 11. 1 to 10. We are nearing the end of our time in the 10 plagues. We've been here for a little while and we've seen God's power over nature and we have seen his supremacy over all so-called gods. There is much that we have seen about the Lord as we've watched these plagues unfold, but I think those are two that stand out. We've seen that God is the God who has power over nature, and that makes sense to us because He made it. He created all things, seen and unseen. Anything that you taste, touch, smell, see, or feel, God made it, or at least made the basis for it. God is over all creation. His power over creation has been clearly on display Through these ten plagues. We've also seen his supremacy over all so-called gods. There's not a single God worshipped in the history of the world. Not a single idol that we could erect in our own lives. Which we have done and are doing. And will do. That can compete in any way whatsoever with this God. He has absolute, total supremacy. Throughout the Bible, God shows us his attributes, and his character, and then he calls us to trust and obey. This is the only way that the, the old hymn says, to be happy in Jesus. There is no other way than to trust and obey. And that is exactly what these displays of God's glory, these displays of his power and supremacy, that is exactly what they call us to do. We see these things and we respond By trusting in this God, the powerful God, and obeying him as the sovereign king, as the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, as the Lord over all. And you know, this really is what Bible reading is all about. When we think about why we read God's word, why we take in or listen to God's word, why we listen to the preaching of God's word, it is because every time we open up the Bible, God is showing and calling. He is showing us who He is. He's showing us His might, His power, His glory, His attributes, His nature. And then out of that showing, He's calling us. He's calling us to respond. A showing and a calling. So in every moment of Bible reading, we are asking the question, God, what are you showing me about yourself? And then we're asking the question, God, what does that mean for my life? What are you calling me to do in response to what you're showing me? And then we pray, and we ask for his grace to help us live in accordance with that call. Last week, we looked at the ninth plague, and we entitled that, The Ninth Plague Lights Out. This is the plague of darkness, the ninth plague, a thick Pitch black darkness falls over Egypt for three days. And as we talked about a little in our gospel community group, you know, you might think at, at the beginning, well, that's not so bad. I mean, take a long nap, wake up, you know, talk a little in the dark, take another nap. You know, you get through that three days in the dark. But I think in reality, we realize, apart, quite apart from all that God was communicating through that, we realize the, the severity and intensity of being in utter, total black darkness for three whole days. As chapter 10 verse 23 says. They did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now we don't know how God did this. Uh, we talked last week about some have proposed a sandstorm. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Or an eclipse doesn't make sense in and of itself. We don't know how God did did this, how he used nature to do this, but he did it in such a way that Goshen had normal light and Egypt was in total darkness. So you can imagine the sun, the, the bright Egyptian, the bright hot Egyptian sun burning down upon the Israelites in Goshen, absolutely sunny and total pitch black darkness among the Egyptians. We don't know how God did it, but we are told that God made this distinction. And we ended last week, after looking at that plague, with a failed negotiation. Pharaoh's response to the darkness plague was to allow Israel to go with all their people, including the children. So finally, he says, okay, all the human beings can go. Men and women and the children, fine. All of you can go, but you have to leave behind your animals, your cattle. You have to leave those behind, but all of the people may go and worship your God. And to that, Moses gives an emphatic, no, that's not going to work, Pharaoh. We can't do that. We need our animals to make sacrifices to Yahweh. We don't know yet what Yahweh will require of us. We don't, we don't know what sort of sacrifices he will require and how many sacrifices he will require. And notice, Moses doesn't stand before Pharaoh and say, no, mine. He doesn't stand before Pharaoh and say, my animals, our animals. That's not the argument that he makes. He makes an argument that is centered on God's glory, an argument that is centered on God's worship. No, 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 Pharaoh, that's not going to work because you see, we are worshipers of God. And we must worship him precisely in the way that he calls us to do it. And we don't know yet. So we got to have all of them. Every single animal. So through God's hardening, what is Pharaoh's response? One answer, rage. Verse 28, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face You shall die. It really is unexpected when we come to that point because you've been watching this back and forth and back and forth all along. And then here, Pharaoh just puts a threat on Moses. He says, get out of my face or I'm gonna kill you. And if I ever see you again, I'm going to strike you dead where you stand. It is abrupt. Moses' response, verse 29, as you say, I will not see your face again. So today, we pick up with Moses' final message for Pharaoh, a message he gives right before he storms out of the palace. We're going to see that in a moment, but uh, we don't get really a break here, I don't think. I think we're moving directly from Moses saying to Pharaoh in verse 29, as you say, I will not see your face again. And then what we find at the beginning of chapter 11, I, I understand that to be just right after that event, that Moses does not immediately storm out when he says, as you say, I will not see your face again. He delivers one more message. Who has the last word? It's not Pharaoh. It's not Pharaoh. It is the message of the tenth and final plague. That's what Moses delivers to Pharaoh. The plague comes later, so we have not entitled the sermon this morning, The Tenth Plague, because we're not quite there yet. There is this this message about the coming of the Tenth Plague, this description of what it will be, but we've got this long description in chapter 12 of the Passover before we get to the actual striking of Egypt with the Tenth Plague. So our title for the sermon this morning is The Coming Cry, The Coming Cry. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together, Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. The coming cry. This is the holy word of the Holy God. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh. About midnight, or midnight, in the middle of the night i will go out in the midst of egypt and every firstborn in the land of egypt shall die from the firstborn of pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot or fierce anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing over the preaching of his word. Let's ask that he would illuminate it. Let's ask that Our hearts would be supple and that we would be cut to the heart in all the ways we need to be this morning. And that's different from person to person. But the Holy Spirit in His sovereignty, and His sovereign mercy and goodness, He's able to do that. Isn't that amazing? He's able to take and work in each of our hearts in very specific, unique ways as the Word of God is applied by Him to the hearts of His people. So let's ask that the Lord, the Holy Spirit would do that this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that he inspired your words that the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That Moses was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these holy, inspired, infallible, and errant words. And they have been transmitted down to us today so that we open up our Bibles and we read these words. Words written by Moses, words inspired by God. Father, we thank you that you have been good to us in bringing us here this morning to be with your people. And how our hearts are lifted up from whatever we are worried about or concerned about or fearful of or regretful about. Lord, whatever it is. Lord, you minister to us by being with your people. How you lift our hearts into your presence and give us joy. You gladden the hearts of your people by your word. Lord, we pray that you would convict us and comfort us. That you would sanctify us. That we would be conformed more and more into the image of this great high priest. Whom Kyle read to us about earlier, Lord. This glorious king. This perfect, obedient, redeeming God-man. Lord, conform us into the image of this Christ. Help us this morning to hear with our ears and hear with our hearts and to hear in practice in how we live when we leave here today. Lord, help us see your glory. Help us see your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. Be with this teaching of your word we ask in Jesus name. Amen. So our passage for today, this description of the coming cry, the coming grief that will overtake Egypt in the 10th plague. This passage gives us three things to consider, three stepping stones if you will, to walk through as we go through this coming cry. So here they are, first the impending exodus, uh, verses 1 to 3, and then we have the imminent blow Well, that should be the impending exodus of Israel, uh, the imminent blow to Egypt, verses 4 to 8, and then the irresistible providence of Yahweh. So we have the impending exodus of Israel. We're going to start there, verses 1 to 3. So if you would look with me in those verses, the impending exodus of Israel. Let's read verses 1 to 3 again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more... I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. And in the sight of the people. Right around the corner, in just a short time, God will lead his people out of Egypt. Here we're reminded of the bigger picture. Why are these plagues happening to begin with? What what is this all about? You know, we've been down in the barrel, so to speak, with these plagues. But now we sort of come up for air. And we're reminded why these plagues are even happening To begin with, because Pharaoh will not let God's people go. Remember this repeated refrain. Let my people go so that they might serve me. He will not let them leave Egypt to serve Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. That's been Yahweh's message to Pharaoh all along. And he has not listened God delivers his people, enters into covenant with them, and calls them to a life of worship. Now, keep that in mind when we we see this very first exodus uh, in the Bible, this theme. it's, It's a motif. It's a theme throughout all of Scripture, this idea of the exodus. And what we find when we go back to the beginning point of all of it is we find this idea That God does it all to call his people to a life of worship. And as we think about our own salvation, we recognize that God brought us out of darkness to make us worshipers. Our exodus was for a purpose that is beyond us. And I think sometimes, you know, we lose that. We think of ourselves very much in terms of our own comforts. We think of God's salvation in terms of our our own blessings that we enjoy because we are saved. I am saved. And therefore, look at all of these wonderful things that I am to enjoy. And we are meant to think that. We see that at the beginning of Ephesians. Uh, We've been blessed with all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We are meant to delight in that. We are meant to rejoice in that, as Paul repeatedly says in Philippians. We are meant to celebrate that and to remind one another of that. However, we must recognize that all of that is for the purpose that God might shine forth in the world. Our salvation doesn't have its ending point with us. The ending point, the goal the purpose for every ounce of grace that we experience in this life, for every bit of mercy that we have is that God might be praised. So think of that. In every moment of hardship, in every moment where we're tempted to become bitter, to grumble against God, in every moment where we are tempted to elevate ourselves because of God's giftings, in all of it, It is God's glory. It is God's praises. It is God shining forth for who he is. That's why God saved you, Christian. That is the purpose for his grace. One more plague, the Lord says. This is it. There will be no more back and forth with this prideful ruler. God has magnified himself in Egypt and he will bring only one more plague on them. And then Pharaoh will release the Israelites. But as we see here, he'll not just release them. This will not be merely a release. Look at the language here in verse 1. He will drive you away completely. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. I mean, we're talking about a Pharaoh who has has not allowed them to do something. And here we get a total reverser, reversal He will not merely release them. He will drive them away completely. He will require them to go. Oh, you must go. You cannot stay here any longer. He will require them to leave and he will push them out completely. No more back and forth over who gets to go. No more question of a three days journey. That has evaporated. That is gone. A debate over who's going to get to go, or what portion, what percentage, what sort of elements are going to have to remain behind, all of that is gone. This will be a complete exodus of Israel. Men, women, children, and yes, all of their animals. As we read last week, not a hoof, not a hoof shall be left behind. They are not coming back. They will go away from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh alone. And that's been a major theme throughout the passages that we've read up to this point is this language of service. It gets blended over with the idea of worship, this language of service. They have served Pharaoh. They have served as slaves to Pharaoh. They have been under Pharaoh in such a way that Pharaoh has exalted himself as their supreme sovereign. No more. Yahweh is the one whom they will serve. And they will serve him alone. So here, God tells Moses that Israel will be forced to go. They will go with all of their numbers, and they will not be coming back. But there's more. There's more here. They will not leave empty-handed. Moses is to instruct the people to ask their neighbors for jewelry or articles of silver and gold. And the amazing thing is, even after all of these blows from Israel's God, even after all of the suffering and all of the striking and the dying and the, and the loss of property, possibly some starving, even after all of that, the people will actually say yes. Yes. They will, they will give. Israelites will just walk over to their neighbors. They will go over to other people. Hey, can I have all your gold? Can I have all your, your money, your silver? Uh, can, can I have all of those things there uh, laying on that table? Yeah, take it. Go, sure, here it is. They will give it away freely. Why? Because God has put favor towards his people in their Hearts. You know, I love this idea because it really does tear away from all of our scurrying about in life to try to please people. Uh, do you notice that? You know, we, we live in a culture, obviously, where there's networking and there's uh, the need to make connections, and, you know, there's, there's people that you kind of want to rub shoulders with and all of that sort of thing. It, it's just a big part of our world, it's a big part of our culture. And isn't it just refreshing? Just step back. Isn't it refreshing to know that our Heavenly Father, our God, our King, our Lord can can put favor? He, He can go into the hearts of people and put favor towards His people in their hearts in order to accomplish His purposes in our lives. We don't have to frantically worry how we're going to make it all happen for ourselves, how we're going to climb all of those ladders, how we're going to meet the right people and impress the right people and please the right people and get favor from the right people. The Lord works in the hearts of people on behalf of his people. We saw that amazingly with Joseph. And we saw it before Joseph in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, God does not just work in the circumstances of his people. God's not just working outside of human hearts. He's not just moving pieces. God moves hearts. He moves hearts. And he moves us along in life according to his purposes. And that's precisely what he's doing here by putting favor in the hearts of the Egyptians towards his people Despite all that they have suffered at the hands of Israel's God. You would expect bitterness, hatred. You would expect venom to be coming out of their eyeballs towards Israel. And instead, their silver and gold coming out of their hands and their houses to God's people. We get a description of this in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, which Mark read to us earlier. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. These little, these little slave kids. These little slave toddlers. Wearing rags. Dirty Filthy, torn rags, now dripping in gold. Dripping in gold and silver. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. In other words, the slaves will become rich like that. Overnight, this slave people will become a rich people. There's probably in view here some level of restitution. As we think about all that the Egyptians have stripped from the Israelites, I mean, consider all the wealth of Israel quite apart from Joseph being in Egypt. When we were going through Genesis, Genesis, we saw it was like a snowball going all the way back to Genesis 12, just chapter after chapter, this snowball is growing of the prosperity that God had put in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this blessing growing and growing to the point to where Lot has to go because there's just too much. And the servants of Lot and the servants of Abraham, this is early on in chapter 13 of Genesis, they're just not getting along and so they have to part ways, there's just too much stuff. There's too many servants, there's too many animals. All that wealth collectively and then of course Joseph becomes the chief man in Egypt and all the wealth that he would have acquired and then Israel comes to Egypt, and all the wealth that the Pharaohs, before Joseph died, would have poured onto the Israelites in this best of land, the land of Goshen. Well, over centuries, all of that has been stripped away to the bone. Stripped away, all that they had, all that they had acquired. And now we have a day of restitution. Now they will be dripping with all this cattle. Dripping in gold and silver. And of course we know that this is not just about having shiny things. This is about the worship of God that will happen in the tabernacle. This is about all that will go on in the wilderness. As God's people have what they need in order to erect that place of holy worship. In addition to the favor towards Israel that God puts in the hearts of the Egyptians. There is also their view of Moses. Do you see that here? Look at verse 3. Moreover, the man Moses was very great. When you see very and great next to each other, it's just meant to just sort of blow, blow the roof off. Great's already a pretty big idea, right? Very great. Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Not just the, the people out there. We're talking about Pharaoh's entourage, We're talking about the most powerful elite people in Egypt. This is how they see Moses. Whoa. In awe of this man. Moses was very great, even in their sight. What we find here is as Pharaoh is being brought low, Moses, as Yahweh's prophet, is being lifted up. So, throughout all of these plagues, we got Pharaoh being squished. Just just mashed down to the dirt and then under the dirt. Meanwhile, God is exalting Moses. This reminds us, of course, of that principle from 1 Peter 5, where it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God hates a prideful heart. God hates human pride. Haughtiness, conceit, being full of ourselves, thinking ourselves better than our neighbors, or shaking our fist at God when things don't go our way because God should have done this better. God hates human pride. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. you know why God hates human pride? But Two reasons. He loves his glory and he knows us as we are. He knows us as we are, but mere dust. Worms, if you will, saturated with sin from the core. The situation before the flood remains true. The inclinations and thoughts of our heart are evil continually. All that spews out of the hearts and mouths of human beings. Read Romans 3, the description we have of human sinfulness. God opposes all of that pride, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who have been given already God's grace to be humble. Grace through Christ. And for Moses, grace through Christ who would come. That grace that works in the heart. That grace that makes the prideful sinner humble before God and neighbor. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And that's what's happening here. Uh, Moses is being exalted and Pharaoh is being squished. So in these first three verses, we get a preview. A preview of the impending exodus. It is coming. And it is coming soon. And that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the imminent Blow to Egypt. So we've seen the impending exodus of Israel. Now we come to the imminent blow to Egypt. Look at verses four to eight. So Moses said, by the way, let me just say something. Almost all errant theology comes from an elevated view of man. Almost all errant theology comes from us seeing ourselves not in the way the Bible presents us as sinners in Adam. And for those of us Christians redeemed in Christ, all of our errant views stem, among other things, from this errant view of our own goodness. That we're basically good, right? We're basically good. Not so, says the testimony of Scripture. Look at verses 4 to 8 for this imminent blow to Egypt. So Moses said, thus says Yahweh, about midnight or the middle of the night I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So what is this one more plague that God will bring on Egypt? What is this final blow that will cause Pharaoh to expel the people completely, not to just permit them to leave, but to force them to leave? It is the death of the firstborn. It is the capstone. We've seen the plagues unfold three, then three, then three, and then now we have the final plague. It it acts as the The climactic capstone just sitting on top of all of the plagues. The death of the firstborn. Every little indication of death, every little occurrence of death has been pointing towards this. Leaning into this. The plague of darkness itself leaning into this plague of the death of the firstborn. Remember what God said to Moses back in chapter 4, verses 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. That's how God sees Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So there is the interplay here. Between Israel being God's son and God taking the sons of Egypt. Here, Moses delivers Yahweh's climactic message to Pharaoh. Yahweh says that he himself, now this is interesting language, this is new to us, that Yahweh himself will go through the midst of Egypt. Later, this figure is called the destroyer. And we've seen these theophanies, these appearances of God, these Christophanies, these appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. We've seen this sort of thing before. But Yahweh himself will go through the land of Egypt. Yahweh himself will strike with death every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from Pharaoh on his lofty throne, all the way down to the firstborn of the lowest of slaves, as well as the firstborn of the cattle. The result, verse 6, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Now, we've seen this word cry before. It was used of the Israelites at the beginning of the book. Do you remember? The Israelites are described as crying under their anguish, as crying under their suffering, under all that they are having to endure So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Well, what do we have here? The tables have now turned. Those oppressing will now be the ones crying. And all of this, of course must be seen against the backdrop of the Egyptian policy to exterminate all the Hebrew baby boys. So as we think about this, you know, you might be tempted to read this and go, ooh, that just sounds so harsh. I mean, God, that's just really, really harsh. Well, we have to recognize this against the backdrop of this firstborn, that that Israel is God's firstborn son. And so God is pouring out his justice on Egypt in the same way way and of course all of this scene in light of what the Egyptians did to the Hebrews remember chapter 1 verse 22 then pharaoh commanded all his people so pharaoh doesn't do this himself all these hebrew babies that are thrown into the nile river uh, the egyptians are complicit in that they're just tossing babies and we know it's happening because we know what Moses' parents do in putting him in that little ark. Uh, hearkening back to Noah, putting him in that little ark and putting him among the reeds. We know that this is actually happening. Uh, though there were some midwives earlier on who were righteous. And those were Egyptian midwives. Righteous. They were not doing this evil thing. But we know that it was happening. These baby Hebrews were being tossed into the Nile, probably in mass numbers. The day of reckoning has come. Egypt has brutally enslaved and killed those who are counted by God as his firstborn son. So now Yahweh will execute his judgment in the land of Egypt. Anytime we read these hard passages, the Canaanites being wiped out, Sodom, And Gomorrah, passages like this, God striking the firstborn in all of Egypt. And other passages throughout the Old Testament, the chief of which is the flood, which kills everyone and everything apart from Noah and his family. Every time we read these passages, we are being reminded that a similar day of reckoning is coming for the whole world. A day like the flood. A day even greater than the flood, which is the greatest destruction the world has ever seen. That day is coming. And all of those are just pointers to that day. And the only way we escape that day, which is coming, entertain yourself. Distract yourself all you want, but this day is coming. Kids, listen. Apart from Jesus Christ, that day will come for you. And you will not be able to stand. Apart from the blood of Christ, which we're going to talk about with the Passover. He is the only way that we will escape the wrath to come. The tenth plague being a pointer to it. But as we've seen before, none of this will befall Israel. They will be shielded or protected uh, in this 10th plague. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come, how that happens with the blood of the Passover lamb. But we read this in verse 7, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, the Lord will come through and strike dead the firstborn, all the firstborn in all of Egypt, and not a bark, from a dog against another dog or against another animal belonging to the Israelites will happen. Nothing will happen to his people. As with most of the other plagues, God will draw this line between Egypt and his people. Those who have been in darkness will now face death. Those who have been in the light will now enjoy Rescue, As I said last week, what a sobering contrast we get in this passage between the outcome, the destiny of the wicked, and the outcome, the destiny of those made righteous through Christ's grace. In verse 8, Moses returns to the theme of the Exodus. He says this, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. In other words, Moses tells Pharaoh that there will be a bowing and a begging. This, this would not have sat well with Pharaoh in his uh, humongous pride. He, he tells him, he says, look, those closest to you, those who, who, who you're used to coming up and you know, giving you your cup, we think of the cup bearer and the baker, giving you your little cookie or your little piece of bread or whatever, all of those who have been serving you, been bowing down to you and just treating you like you are a god, They're going to come bowing down to me, Pharaoh. And they're going to be begging us to get out of the land. Moses tells Pharaoh that this bowing and begging will happen. How low Yahweh has brought Egypt. Pharaoh's very own servants will bow and plead to this enemy of Pharaoh. Well, this is Moses' final message He has nothing more to say. The back and forth is over. Now there is nothing more to do than turn and walk away. So look at the end of verse 8. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Pharaoh's anger is here matched by Moses' anger. Pharaoh's anger grows out of the glory of self. When the glory of self is pricked, Oh, how angry we get. Think about your anger. Let the anger that, that you express be a pointer to your own heart. Oh, how anger is a symptom of an inflated view of self. Anytime this glory of self gets poked, we see anger, we see rage. Pharaoh's anger is a response to this Self-glory being poked. By contrast, Moses' anger has nothing to do with self. It grows out of a love for God's glory, for God's justice, for God's truth. Also, Moses' anger is here a picture of God's anger towards Pharaoh. Moses, as a prophet, is, is in his own emotions is manifesting God's wrath, God's judgment towards pharaoh he is a picture of the judgment that will come towards this rebellious prideful ruler one commentator discussing Moses' anger named walter kaiser says this to be in the presence of evil and yet fail to be angry is a dreadful spiritual and moral malady Now, of course, we have to govern our anger. We know oftentimes in our sinfulness that our anger is tainted by all kinds of bad motives, by all kinds of human pride, by all sorts of things that are not of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger sets the tongue ablaze, which sets the whole world ablaze, we learn from James. But nonetheless... To not be angry in the face of evil is to be morally deficient. It is to fail to see how awful evil is and how awful evil is in the sight of the Creator. So that brings us finally to the irresistible providence of Yahweh. We've seen the impending exodus of Israel. It's coming. The imminent blow to Egypt. It's coming. And then the irresistible providence Of Yahweh. That's the reason both of those are coming. So look at verses 9 to 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. As the tenth plague approaches, God reassures Moses that he is very much in control. That God has never taken the hands off the steering wheel. God is entirely in control. All of this is being guided and orchestrated by the sovereign, providential hand of God. Pharaoh will not listen to you, he tells Moses. Why? What is God doing? Why will Pharaoh not listen? That my wonders may be multiplied In the land of Egypt. This is a theme we've seen time and time again. What's the reason that God gives for Pharaoh's not responding, for Pharaoh's resistance, for Pharaoh not listening? That my wonders, Yahweh says, may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is not going to come back to Moses before the tenth plague. Don't even count on it, Moses. He's not going to summon you, he's not going to send for you before this happens. Moses is not going to receive knocking at his door from Pharaoh's servants trying to renegotiate, or for that matter, even being willing to let the people go entirely before the 10th plague comes. No, the 10th plague will happen. The 10th plague must happen. It will be a display of God's justice and his power And it will definitively show all of the Egyptians that Yahweh alone is the God over all the earth. The author of life and of death. He gives and takes away, as Job says in chapter 1, verse 21. Yahweh is the one who gives and he is also the one who takes away. He gives life and he takes away life. As verse 10 reiterates, Moses and Aaron have been performing these signs all along, and God was working to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he might display his glory through the 10 plagues. Don't ever forget that as we walk away from the plagues. You know, it's amazing to see, I've said this before, what commentators do with the 10 plagues and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and what they therefore do with Romans 9. It's amazing how an otherwise solid and sound Bible teacher and exegete and scholar will march along and explain the language and read it in context and see the writing on the wall and then all of a sudden he can't even drive when he gets to this passage. And that's what you see when you get to the ten plagues. It is clear, abundantly clear, it is reiterated for us that the Lord, is behind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And we've talked about this, and we've said, look, that doesn't remove any responsibility from Pharaoh. It's man's word that says, if God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh cannot be responsible. Who says that? That's not what God's word says. That's what man's reason says, because he can't penetrate beyond that. But we've seen this time and time again. It began with God's hardening When God said that's what he was going to do. And here we see it ends with God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He will do it to display his glory. And guess what? One day when Pharaoh is raised from the dead to stand before Yahweh. That's coming for him. His soul will be reunited with his dead body. And as Daniel 12 says, he will be gathered together in one piece before Yahweh, before God's tribunal, and Pharaoh will give an account to God justly for every single act and word of rebellion and resistance to the Lord. God is sovereign and man is responsible. As we finish this morning, I want you to see the irony here. All along, Pharaoh has been resisting Yahweh This is the great irony of this entire 10 plague passage. Pharaoh has been resisting Yahweh, resisting his command to let the people go. And you even imagine that as the magicians are falling over and as the servants are falling over, Pharaoh's sort of priding himself, still beating his gorilla-like chest, thinking to himself, you know, Yahweh's not going to move me. I will not agree to these demands. Resisting in his pride the word of God. The irony is this. All along, God's providence has been at work. Even in Pharaoh's resistance. The chest beating Pharaoh who thinks he's resisting God. Is falling right into God's glorious plan to glorify himself. Pharaoh may resist God's command. But there is nothing whatsoever that he can do to resist God's providence. Yahweh has been in control all along. This is the story of Exodus. This is the story of the world. The story of all of world history. God has been in control all along. This is the story. That is true. That was true then. It is true today And it will remain true until the end of time. And what we need to hear is that it will be true when we walk out of this building this morning. It will be true when uncomfortable things happen this week. It will be true when frightening things or sad things or anger-inducing things or setbacks happen this week and in the coming weeks. It is still true. And there is perhaps no greater doctrine that helps God's people strongly with courage and strength persevere until the end. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. We bow in your presence. We thank you, almighty God, for making the heavens and the earth and for making us. Lord, we are utterly floored by the fact that you have in your sovereign grace saved us from eternal hell. Lord, what what horrors, what sorrows, what eternal emptinesses await the children of Adam. And yet you have made us the children of God. You have made us the brothers and sisters of our elder brother and high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. What glories await those saved by sovereign grace. Lord, what fools we are when we sink our teeth into the tasty pleasures of this world. When we make our lives about earthly riches, dreams and comforts, what fools we become living like children of Adam, destined to hell. Lord, help us live as those who are children of God, would we not love the world or the things in the world? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Lord, would we do the will of God? Would we live humbly before your face? Would we consider the interests of our brothers and sisters greater than our own? Would we obey your word? Would we live peaceful, and quiet lives in this present age. Would we be faithful and holy, pursuing godliness and contentment, which are great gain? Would you be with us, God? And would you help us now, as we go through the Lord's Supper, to confess our sins, to examine our hearts, and to, as Paul commands us by the Spirit, to rejoice, to rejoice in the gospel. Would you be with us now? In Christ's name, amen.